for the love of goats. We are talking about everything goat. Whether you're a goat owner, a breeder, or just a fan of these wonderful creatures, we've got you covered. And now, here's Deborah Neiman. Today's episode is brought to you by Goats 365, my membership program for people who are living with, learning about, and loving goats 365 days a year. Basic members get access to six courses covering housing, fencing, parasites, nutrition, and health, as well as things like composting goat manure and the basics of starting a goat-based business. Premium members also have the opportunity to attend live online meetings via Zoom to talk about goats every month. Visit goats365.com to learn more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. This is another one of our breed profiles, and I am really excited to be talking about a meat goat breed today, the Kiko goat. And we are joined by Karen Kupf of Kupf Canyon Ranch in Idaho. And when I saw their website, I saw that uh, she keeps a lot of really great records on weight gain and things like that. And so, you know, I like statistics. So I just knew I had to have her on the show to talk about Kikos. Welcome to the show, Karen. Thank you for inviting me. I couldn't pass up an opportunity to talk about goats. Awesome. So go ahead and just give us a little bit of a history on the Kiko breed and what got you involved. So Kiko goats are a relatively new breed. They were created, breed in New Zealand. Initially, goats in New Zealand were seen as pests. They were literally overrunning the country because there are very few predators that prey upon goats. And so they had several eradication measures in place hunting, not even a hunting season, wide open hunting for for goats to eradicate them. And a gentleman by the name of Garrick Batten looked at the survivability of the goat as an opportunity. And he knew that there were other countries that needed to increase the hardiness of their animals because of the marginal feed that was available to them. And seeing the wild feral New Zealand goats surviving on these marginal terroirs decided, well, if I take this feral New Zealand goat and I cross it to some high performance dairy goats, I might have something that would improve the meat yield and success and survivability of the herds in these developing countries. So that's where it began. And an American developed an interest in what he was doing and imported a group of Kiko. And that's where it began for us. Awesome. So I noticed your website is kikogoats.org, which probably means you got started pretty early because you got that URL. <laughs> How long have you been raising Kikos? We've been raising Kikos for only about eight years, actually. They've been in the country since the 90s, so we aren't one of the first to have Kiko. Dr. Ann Peichel is actually the first, but we've raised a number of different breeds, and Kiko kind of came to us by accident. We started with goats in 4-H and did dairy breeds, and then decided as the kids grew older and weren't interested in dairying that it would be easier to switch to a meat goat herd, and we went commercial with a hodgepodge of goats. And within that hodgepodge, we had a few Kiko does. 
And it didn't take long before the performance of those Kikos just dominated the herd. And it was clear that if we needed a low maintenance herd, because we both have jobs outside of the ranch, Kiko was the breed that would work for us. And so we switched over. We sold our entire commercial herd, with the exception of a couple of the Kiko, and went to an all Kiko herd. Okay. And when you are talking about commercial and then versus all Kiko, when you say commercial, you mean unregistered? Unregistered, likely couldn't define all of the breeds that were within the herd. I know we had several purebred boar. We had some boar crosses. We had some boar Kiko crosses. But I couldn't guarantee that other breeds hadn't snuck into that herd as well, which is the case when you have a commercial herd and you don't have a DNA traceability to the parents. So now you just have registered Kikos? Yes, we have registered Kiko. We do have a few dairy goats in our herd because at one time we were approached by the North American Packet Goat Association President Curtis King. He wanted to see what would happen if we crossed Kiko onto dairy goats what type of pack goat we might have. And so we brought in a few dairy breeds. We brought in some Alpine Oberhosley, some Alpine and some Sonnen and crossed to those breeds. And what was interesting was we have followers that love the crosses, but now we have additional followers that are Kiko lovers through and through. They want purebred Kiko for their pack goats. And so over time, as that niche has grown, We have gone away from those dairy goats again. We found that they just did not have the longevity or survivability that our people did. It took a lot more effort to manage that part of the herd than it does a straight keto herd for us under our conditions. So when you said that you were really amazed by the production or performance of the Kikos, what was it exactly that made you say, whoa, this is what we want to focus on. What were they doing? <laughs> the mother ability. There are some Kiko standards that people talk about that sound legendary, but if that's what a breeder is selected for, they truly are the hallmarks of the Kiko breed. They are incredible, incredible mothers. They have an extremely high foraging drive. They I won't say that our Kiko will survive on marginal feed. All goats do need to be fed, but our goats never receive grain. Not at any time in their lives, not during lactation, not during pregnancy, not even in old age. We feed alfalfa hay through the winter and they have forage through the summer. And so that for us was a benefit not to have to store and manage grain. And then their parasite resistance. We have a herd right now. Our breeding herd is just over 150 animals. And we'll wind up with about 200 kids at kidding time. And when we go through our health checks, there aren't even two hands worth of animals that need to be dewormed. Well, some of our animals have never needed deworming in a lifetime. So in that respect, they were just so much easier to care for. They were so hardy. We have probably 12 seasons in Idaho. Most of them are wet and half of them are very cold. The other half, I wouldn't say are brutally hot. We only have one season that's brutally hot, but we can range in temperatures from the negative 20s Fahrenheit up to 115 Fahrenheit at the extremes. And our Kiko rarely seek shelter. 
They will sleep out in the snow. They will be snowed upon and have a blanket of snow on them, and they don't mind. They don't mind the wind. They will forage during the rain. The only time we see them really seek shelter is if it is a driving, pelting, soaking rain or hail. Those are the two types of weather they don't like. Otherwise, you wouldn't know we were having weather at all. Wow, that is incredible. And then what is kidding season like? Because most dairy goat breeders are pretty hands-on, whereas most sheep breeders are pretty hands-off. It's pretty much 180 degrees difference. So where do Kikos fall into that? How much attention or care do they need during kidding season? Again, it, it depends on what the breeder selects for, because some of our dairy goats in our herd lived very Kiko. So selection plays a big part in the management of a herd. For us, because we both have jobs off the ranch, it's kind of like an Easter egg hunt during kidding season. When we do have the chance to go out to pasture, we look for kids. And if we happen upon one, we have our portable sling scale and an ear tagger and a clipboard. And we take a note of the weight, we tag it and take a note of the dam so that if we ever need to match them up again, and so that we can track the data on that dam. But it is rare that we get to witness a birth and even rarer that we would assist in a birth. But I have had to assist in birth before with the Kiko. With a large herd, inevitably, there are some issues. We've had malpresentations. We've had moms that were surprised by the number of kids they had and were separated from a few. (laughs) But for the most part, they take care of it on their own. And I think part of that is also because in our management style, because we're unable to assist at the point of birth, we do not breed dolings. We carry our dolings over until they're 18 months old to breed them at 18 months. And then they kid when they are two-year-olds. And part of that is because we want them to grow and lay down a good foundation of calcium. It takes a lot of calcium to grow and lactate during pregnancy. But the other part of it is when they get to experience birth in the herd with their mothers and their sisters as dolings, we watch them even become babysitters for their younger siblings, and they learn a lot of these mothering skills. They watch their mothers call, they watch the babies respond, they watch how mothers discipline the babies, and they don't seem to be as surprised by what's happening to them when they kid themselves. Wow, that is really interesting because I know a lot of first fresheners, when they are in labor, they sound like they are being torn limb from limb. (laughs) And I'm just sitting there with them going, honey, it's okay. It's normal. You're not dying. I promise. But once they've done it, then, you know, next year, they're like, they know what's happening and they're really Mm -hmm. quiet. But we also use kidding Mm -hmm. pens. So they don't usually see other goats giving birth unless they happen to see it, you know, within a couple days before they mm-hmm. kid themselves. We don't have any kidding pens, ours kid on open pasture. And in fact, their open pasture drops down into our canyon. So sometimes part of our checking pasture involves, you know, a steep climb up and down the side of a canyon to find little ones that are tucked under logs and rocks. And we do try to bring all of the does and kids up at night. We've tried to train the herd 
to stay on the rim at night simply because of the predator load that we have in the canyon and it's safer for them up there. There are some does, though, that just insist on staying down in the canyon with their babies and living as wild as they can possibly live. And we don't want to stress them. We find we have much better outcomes when we let them decide what works than when we try to decide what's best for them. That's really interesting, but it makes a lot of sense. I know one of the things we learned early on is that the last thing you ever want to do is move a doe that's already mm-hmm. in labor. <laughs> you know, it's like if you find a doe in the pasture in labor, that's where she's going to give birth. Because <laughs> if you try to move them, everything just shuts down, which makes sense. Like Because you've just really stressed them out by moving them when they're already in labor. So... Do Kikos tend to have uh, twins almost all the time, or do they have some triplets or even more? We have a very high kidding percentage in our herd. A lot of the doe lines that we have have very high kidding percentages. We had a 12-year-old that retired with a kidding percentage of, I believe, 274%. So our kidding average usually is right around 230 240%. That said, we have very few singles, even among our first fresheners. We can have triplets and quads with first fresheners, and we have had four sets of quintuplets. Wow, that's interesting. I have not heard of other breeds having quintuplets other than Nigerians. So it's really interesting to hear that your Kikos have done that too. We've had eight sets of quintuplets. They are not my favorite. <laughs> They're fine as long as you've got a good mama. Last year, we had a set of quintuplets, or actually this year, 2022, and one of the little babies was blue, and the other four were black, and I think it happens from time to time that when one of the babies doesn't match, it confuses the mama, and so this little blue one wound up in our bottle baby section, but she did raise the four, and last year, we had five on another doe, she raised all five and we retained her four dolings and they are in our breeding herd this year. They were outstanding. Wow. That was <laughs> nice. <laughs> of the five, yes. four were dolings. Yeah. Well, it makes sense that if you are breeding for meat, that more kids could be beneficial. So I know you keep a lot of records on weight gain and stuff like that. So Let's talk about weight gain. How much weight do you want to see your Kiko kids gaining? We wean at 90 days and we like to see our dolings achieve a minimum of 40 pounds by 90 days and our bucklings a minimum of 50 pounds. And so any average daily gain between 0.3, is usually right on track. What's challenging though, as you keep records is you'll find that just like with people, they hit their growth spurts at different times. So initially, we took our weights at three intervals during those 90 days. We had 30-day intervals just to watch their growth patterns. And some babies just skyrocketed in those first 30 days, but then they would taper off in the 60 to 90 days and the others didn't look like they were going to be doing very much at 60 days and then that 60 to 90 day period just shot up and so we've learned that it's hard to predict at a single point in time with an average daily gain 
what their finished winning weight might be. They do tend to level out, average out. And we expect that type of gain regardless of the litter size of the dam. So even with our triplets and quadruplets, we want to see those weights. In a meat hurt, there's no sense having that many kids on a doe if they're not going to score well enough at a sale yard. Yeah, exactly. So you'd rather have two strong, well-developed kids than four weak kids. But if a doe can raise four strong kids, she's a rock star for us. Yeah, that's why I'm mostly happy with triplets because they seem to all do really well with triplets. And then once you get to quads with the Nigerians, there's usually one that's going to start to fall behind the others. And sometimes that has to do with the kid's personality as much as the doe, because the one kid is just more shy than the others, not as aggressive. Mm-hmm. So just for comparison, for anybody wondering, like with my Nigerians, I won't wean them before they're 20 pounds and they will hit that usually around eight to 10 weeks. So tell us more about the um, other data that you've got on weight gain. So when we evaluate a herd, Akiko is different from other breeds. We don't have a breed standard. So while it is important to have a good structural confirmation so that the animal can perform, the animal can give birth, the animal can walk correctly, the animal can eat correctly, We don't judge them the same way other breeds are judged. We're looking at other criteria, and those criteria are all measurable criteria with data. For our does, we're looking at her kidding percentage. We're looking at her mother ability. In our herd, a fascinating bit of data that we keep is her weight at breeding, and then we compare that to her weight at weaning. And what we want to see is a doe that has not lost weight during pregnancy and lactation. And some breeders will compare that weaning weight as well to the doe's litter weight, how much her kids weighed at weaning. And the goal for some breeders is to have a litter weight of kids that exceeds the weight of the doe at weaning. That is a slippery slope sometimes because if the doe has lost weight at weaning, it doesn't give an accurate picture because there's going to be a cost to that breeder trying to bring that doe back to her breeding condition because she has deteriorated during pregnancy and lactation. So we just look at the breeding weight and the weaning weight to see, is this a strong doe? Is she set back? And even when they're Two-year-olds, we look at that. We want to see two-year-olds continue to grow even while they're pregnant and lactating. So that's one bit of data that we keep on our does. We look at worming records over a lifetime. So when we put out our sale list for our kids, we show the kids' weaning weight. We show the dam's weight. We show the sire's weight because Kiko can range significantly in weight. You can have mature does that are 90 pounds and mature does that are 190 pounds. And you can have mature bucks that are 175 pounds and you can have mature bucks that are over 300 pounds. So it's very important to a buyer, particularly a distant buyer, to know more information about the sire and dam when you don't have these great standards, like what is their current weight, their mature weight, we also put in that information, how many times have the sire and dam been dewormed in their lifetime? 
the dam's kidding percentage, and any other interventions we've had on that animal. There's a lot of different ways you can look at weaning weights too, and it's always important to ask the breeder how they're gathering those weaning weights because there is an actual weaning weight, which is the day that you wean, whether it's 83 days or 90 days, this is how much they weigh, and to know how old they were. There's a calculated weaning weight. That's what we use where we have a whole group of animals that come through the scale on one day, and they're not comparable because some are 80 days old, some are 94 days old. And so we do what's called a calculated weaning weight, where we take their age and their weight, and we divide it to get the average daily gain, and then we calculate to 90 days. So you can compare the whole kid crop at 90 days. The other weaning weight that you can see is called an adjusted weaning weight. And an adjusted weaning weight is fascinating, but we don't use it. It actually takes into consideration the age of the dam, and it gives a deduction based on the age of the dam. It takes into consideration the litter size that the kid is raised in. It also takes into consideration the gender of the kid. And so it's adjusted based on all of those factors. So it's not an actual weight. Wow, that's interesting. And it's definitely interesting because of the fact that like a first freshener isn't going to make as much milk as a doe that's like in her prime or a goat that's like nine or 10 years old not going to make as much milk as a doe that's in her prime. So that is also interesting information to have. It's also fascinating. Um, I love it. Is there anything else that you have in terms of data on your goats? Yes. Out of each kid crop, we retain a group of doelings and bucklings. We do like to see six-month weights, and we like to see yearling weights, because a weaning weight tells you a lot about the performance of the dam, but doesn't tell you necessarily the performance of that kid, particularly when you're offering breeding stock to other breeders. Once the kid is removed from the dam at weaning, there are kids that go through weaning shock, and you'll see a steep drop-off on their trajectory of weight gain. Some kids recover quickly from weaning shock, some kids do not recover from weaning shock, and some kids never experience weaning shock. But apart from the dam, at that point, you see the strength of the foraging skill of that kid and the kid's ability to convert the food that it's going to be eating for the rest of its life because it's not going to be nursing. So we find that to be very important data to collect to understand the performance of that pairing and not just that dam, and then yearling for the same reason. It gives us more time to observe them adjust from a weanling to an adult. And we look for weights with our bucklings. We want to see over 100 pounds as yearlings. Most of ours wind up in the 125, 135 pound range as yearlings as bucks. Wow, this is great. So obviously you sell breeding stock and it sounds like you are a wonderful breeder to get breeding stock from because of all the data that you keep that people would really be able to drill down on exactly what their goals are and figure out what goats to purchase. Do you also sell goats for meat? We do. We do. Half of the kid crop this year did go to the meat market. 
And how does that part of the business work? Do you have a regular buyer every year or do you advertise directly to the public or how do you do that? We do both. We have a large ethnic population in our region that appreciates being able to come to the ranch and see the herd and see how they live and know the source of their meat. We also have a buyer that just takes dozens at a time. And then we also have tried having meat processed under a USDA label so that we can sell individual cuts. And that gives people the opportunity to try goat that have never had goat before without having to buy an entire goat to add to their freezer. That's great. So you pretty much do it all in terms of selling the meat, all the different options. <laughs> do you sell to any restaurants? Not at this time. Okay. We talked about it, but we haven't gone that direction yet. The restaurant market's challenging because they prefer certain cuts and they have to have a high volume of that cut. And as we know, a goat <laughs> only produces so much of that cut. And then what happens to the rest of the goat? And we had a local restaurant that wanted goat legs. And that's wonderful. They make a fantastic curry, the bone-in. And that's one of our favorite restaurants, one of our favorite meals. However, we can't just sell goat legs without having a buyer for the rest of the goat. So restaurants are a different market, and it'll take a little bit more finesse on our part to have everything lined up so the full goat is used. Interesting. So is there any particular type of person or goat owner or whatever that Kiko would be especially good for or not good for if somebody's considering Kikos? That is another reason that we absolutely love the Kiko is the diversity of the breed. And as we started, you're correct in saying Kiko is known as a meat goat. In fact, the name Kiko is Maori, the native New Zealand language for the word meat. Oh. But as we talked about the origin of the Kiko breed, remember how they started. They were feral goats that were across the high-performing dairy bucks. So one of the reasons that Kiko excel with this rapid growth as kids is because of the milk quality of their dams, if they're selected for that. And it's interesting that when we DNA test our Kiko, we have the option of testing for alpha S1 casein, which is a dairy trait. It is the milk fat content, the protein content of the milk. And we find that a lot of Kiko have very, very strong A, B, alpha casein traits. And so we found a lot of homesteaders in our region are interested in Kiko for the possibility of using both Kiko to produce milk for their family and meat for their family. And then there's another group of people that like Kiko for pack goats because Kiko tends to be very teachable and docile, but again, temperament is very heritable. It depends on the herd that they come from. So you always want to meet the Kiko herd if you're looking for a Kiko for packing purposes. But another big market for Kiko is the land management companies that are using goats 
because these goats are ranging over acres and acres of land without shelter, without a lot of management and intervention in Pico with their hardiness and parasite resistance and ability to manage stress in a lot of different environments do extremely well for the land management companies. And that's another thing. Kiko are thriving. Initially, they thought that Kiko would be perfect for the hot, humid southeast part of the country. And that's where you find most of our Kiko brooders because that's where the breed really took off. Mm-hmm. But as the years have gone on, we're watching Kiko spread throughout the country. And they're doing beautifully in the hot desert areas of the southwest. And they're doing exceptionally well in the cold northern climates as well. Wow, that is so cool. I knew they were a fascinating goat. There's a breeder fairly close to us, a vet who raises Kikos, who's been raising them for probably 15 years or longer. And um, I know she's got very strict culling standards and everything because she's very much into the all the things you've talked about. But it's just really wonderful to get your perspective on all of this. Is there anything else that people should know about Kikos before taking the plunge and getting some? Again, because Kiko don't have a breed standard, you don't know what you're buying in a Kiko unless you ask a lot of questions. Again, you could get a doe that's 90 pounds when she's mature or 190 pounds when she's mature. A buck who's 175 pounds when he's mature or 300 pounds when he's mature. So ask lots of questions of your breeder about the lineage of the goats that you're buying. Kiko do have a registry. There are several registries for Kiko. Our herd is registered primarily with the AKGA, the American Keeper Board Association, which was the original herd book for Kiko, and they require DNA testing. It's required. And as such, all of the other registries recognize the AKGA registration, and I can transfer them into other registries. It's been interesting as I watch the forums to see someone post a goat and say, what kind of goat is this? And it's not too hard to pick out a Sonnen or an Oberhosley or a Toggenberg or a Nigerian dwarf or La Mancha's are really easy. <laughs> but I always laugh when someone says it looks like a Kiko. <laughs> because as a Kiko breeder, I say to myself, well, what does that look like? Because in our herd, They come in all shapes and sizes, all colors except for red hoods. I've got spotted ones. I've even got a brindle Kiko in my herds. So so it looks like a Kiko. They have upright ears. They have pendulous ears. They have airplane ears. Wow, that is interesting. (laughs) So if you want to know for sure you have a Kiko, then that's when the registration might be important to you and the DNA testing to know for sure you have a Kiko. And then the other part of it is to definitely ask your breeder about their records because we don't do shows like your boar and your dairy goats and we don't have milk tests and those types of things. The only way to know what you're getting is to ask questions about the data that that breeder keeps. How many times have the dam and sire been deworned in their lifetime? You know, what is the kidding performance of the dam? What was the weaning weight of her kids last year? And just get to know the bloodlines that you're looking at purchasing. And I think more importantly is to look for a breeder whose management style is similar to the management style that you're going to use. 
So if you're thinking you want a grass-fed herd, grass-fed in quotation marks, that's hay and forage, then you're probably better off going to a breeder that has a grass-fed herd simply because their rumens develop differently and the epigenetics of the goats that are in utero for a grass-fed dam are different than a grain-fed dam. So recognize also that your, your breeder may be your mentor. And if you are going to depart significantly from the way they manage their herd, it will be difficult for them to support you and answer your questions. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. Yeah. This was so much amazing advice that you just gave here the last couple of minutes. This is really great advice for somebody getting started with not just Kikos, but really any breed of goats. Thank you so much for all of that. And thank you for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. And that's it for today's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to hit the subscribe button so that you don't miss any episodes. To see show notes, you can always visit ForTheLoveOfGoats.com. And you can follow us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash LoveGoatsPodcast. See you again next time. Bye for now.